Hi, everybody. This is Arathi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we're speaking to Jeremiah um, and it's going to be about his journey in education. Welcome, Jeremiah. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my name is Jeremiah Short. I'm in my ninth year in education, um, seven years as a classroom teacher. Well, the last two years I spent as a reading and writing interventionist um, in Houston, Texas. Um, I worked for a few school districts in my career, and I've worked for um, worked with a range of uh, populations now, um, which I feel like I've blessed to being able to do. I feel like my process has been accelerated, um, where I can learn so much. Um, a lot of, obviously, what we may talk about is the science of reading and just a reading journey and literacy overall. And I feel like my life's journey and my journey in education has really informed me. So I'm excited to talk about it. Beautiful. Thank you, Jeremiah. Um, tell us where where did your journey in education begin? Well, mainly as a teacher, actually. Well, um, as we were talking before um, the interview started, I actually was a writer before, and that's literally what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to become a writer. I took it seriously. I would uh, send my material to national writers and people thought I had a chance to do that. And the crazy part is someone from my church, they told me like, hey, I just needed a stable job. So being a writer doesn't pay a lot or trying to you know, start at least a career in that. So I was like, okay, this is a stable job. I could just do this and I know I won't be stressed out about money. That's literally all I was thinking about. And so I decided I worked at a behavior school my first two years. It literally was a job I decided to get just to have a stable income. And I was like, well, maybe I'll become a teacher and that's pretty good money. And that just kind of relieve stress a little bit. And maybe I'll teach high school math or something like it, it crossed my mind. And my first year I worked as a, at the behavior school as a paraprofessional, so a teacher's assistant. Um, I hadn't even started the process to get my certification yet, even though that was kind of a goal of mine. But in the evening time, and even at my church, I would work with kids. And I kind of caught the bug then. I was like, hmm, I was like, I think I like working with kids. Even though I worked at a behavior school, I knew working with kids kind of seemed like something I wanted to do. And ironically, you mentioned about tying it to your life's journey. It's funny, most of my life, kids have always gravitated to me. I don't know why, they just always did. People like, they didn't even get it. It was always weird. Somewhat, that they was like, man, kids kind of gravitate to you. And I was like, I guess. <laughs> so um, I do have a few educators in my family or a lot of educators in my family. So it's kind of a natural pedigree. And toward the end of my first year, uh, I had a chance to cover an NCAA tournament event for basketball and it went really well. And the newspaper that I worked for, they offered me a job. And I was I, I quickly turned it down. I was like, no, nah, I think I want to teach. And that's when I, I knew at that point I wanted to teach. And it's somebody who for the last probably like three or four years of their life, decided they wanted to become a writer, take it seriously, all this stuff. But I knew at that point that was my calling to teach. Like people may realize I'm making up some cool, corny story, but that's really what happened. And that's kind of how the journey started. And that's uh, over that next year, I ended up getting – offered my first job at that point. I actually just wrote 
or actually just uh, did a video about two weeks ago on kind of receiving that first offer. Um, so that was pretty awesome to get that first offer as a teacher. And then off I went. That's amazing. Jeremiah, tell us, tell us about your, yeah, where that journey led you into teaching and your insights into, you mentioned mm -hmm. before, the science of reading. Um, okay. Yeah. Tell us about so, that. I'll start, like, I've worked at a few different schools, so this is only my seventh year as a regular teacher, but my first two years, um, oddly enough, um, my literacy coach, my first literacy coach was probably the best teacher in the history of the district I worked in. Um, she had the highest performance ever, um, literally, <laughs> not even, like, someone just saying figuratively. So I had a chance to learn from a phenomenal um, literacy coach. Um, so my first year, I mean, I wasn't that great, but I was really good at motivating. Um, I was really good at getting kids to, like, want to come to school, all that, but I wasn't that great of a teacher the first part of my year. And then I had a chance to watch this literacy coach uh, model a lesson. Here's the fun fact about that, though. Um, at the time that I actually modeled the lesson, I actually was the highest performing reading teacher in the school. Um, that, it wasn't really saying that much that I was the highest performing teacher. That probably was an indictment on what we read at the time, but I was. And I actually come out a lesson because I felt like my kids weren't grown. I was like, whatever I'm doing, I feel like they were doing well, but they've kind of they ain't getting past where I had pushed them. Um, so I actually come in a model lesson. I watched her teach. I was like, yeah, this looks like me right here. This looks like what I should be doing. Because um, that was the part I was trying to figure out. Even though I was a first-year teacher, so sometimes it takes years to figure that out. But I was like, that looks like what I should be doing. <laughs> like so, um, And I called it Go Get It. And she showed me just go in there and go get it. You don't have to have a bunch of anchor charts, go all slow. She just went in there and talked from the hill, core reading. Um, her expertise was through the charts, through the roof. Um, so that was kind of like my first start in it. So she was teaching me things like core reading, groupings, um, different things like that. I still didn't learn much about that stuff that went into reading, but at the end of that first year, um, we had a diagnostic test. I think we used iStation. And I saw that most of my kids were tier three influencing, um, which at the time I really didn't know much about what all that stuff was. I just knew maybe that's not a good thing. <laughs> and then they read really slowly or something like that. I didn't know how to assess those things. But I made it a point that next year, the main focus I was going to have, I thought fifth grade, was to um, focus on fluency. So I sent home passages. We did that. That was almost when a new student came to my class. That was the first thing I did. I called it like my walking dead questions. I, I wanted to find out how good their fluency was. I didn't know about all the other components, vocabulary and how to teach that properly and things like that. But fluency was a big focus of mine. So by the middle of the year, most of my kids could read 130 words per minute in fifth grade, which is, I guess, in the 50. 50th percentile, all that good stuff. I had some reading 250 words per minute. And then, so according to the Nate, that's one of the biggest things that determines successes or reading fluency accuracy and or reading fluency. And by the end of that year, um, second administration of, of our state assessments, 91% of them had passed that state assessment, which was pretty good. Now, I didn't know at the time, my literacy coach, she had the highest performance in the history of that district at 95%. I got 91%. So I wasn't too far off of her. <laughs> so, uh, so, I realized that, okay, fluency is a pretty big deal. Um, so I've always focused on that, whether it's in interventions, anything like that. So I would say that's my first indoctrination into science of reading. But without realizing or not, I kind of was understanding what was important as far as what helped kids learn how to read because they need to be fluent readers. Um, now, knowing about expression and all those things, probably not. I, I would, didn't know much about that, but I knew kids being able to read the words fluently was a very big deal. So that was kind of my start into maybe an SOR journey without realizing. And also, um, as we 
talked about before I got on air, I really was a structured literacy teacher when I realized it because I taught whole group. I didn't do many small groups within the regular block. I only did that during our RTI period. So I didn't realize at the time that's more structured literacy um, and balanced literacy is uh, done a little different. So that was kind of my first indoctrination into that. Beautiful. And Jeremiah, I'll take you back to that point um, where you talked about your literacy coach. You watched mm -hmm. your literacy coach um, model a lesson and you mm -hmm. said that that's what I feel like I, I will be doing or I need to be doing. It, it's, it's the energy level. She just, it was through the roof. It was, um, like I said, she didn't, uh, essentially I was a rookie teacher. So I just followed what my teammate told me we should do. Look at a bunch of anchor charts, do a bunch of PowerPoints. It was honestly boring. So I just did, you know, what was, you know, presented to me, but I watched her. It wasn't, she just kind of like, I won't say talk from the heart, but it was just more intuitive. It was just more, just go in there and just teach the material. You ain't got to go in there and be all perfect and go through all these boring anchor charts and things like that. You go in there and you just teach. And I was like that high energy level. I was like, I already kind of was a high energy teacher in a way, but more with the, the chance and things, but not with my actual instruction. So when I saw that, I was like, that's more how I should teach. And so that's when I started teaching that way. Um, just to give another example, uh, I had to take my, I don't know, y'all call them ESLs in Australia, but um, I had to take my ESL test. So I left uh, to take that test. Um, and I came back because we were doing camps at that time for our state assessments. And so she filled in for me. I came back. I could feel the energy as I was walking in the room. And when I walked back in, she was like, hey, do you want to um, take over? I was like, no, nah, I'll just sit back and watch. I told people, you don't get a chance to watch greatness much. You, you might as well take advantage of that. And so I just watched some of the things she would do. Um, one of the things I still do to this day, um, when she was instructing, she would have the kids flip toward her. And um, so she'll have all the kids flip toward her as she instructed. Because uh, I even still see now, even at the school I'm at now, I walk, walk in and a lot of teachers, they'll be talking and instructing and the kids are looking at each other. Yeah. And they're wondering why the kids, you know, aren't paying attention or something like that. I'm like, because they're looking at each other instead of turning toward you. It was just a simple thing. Um, so, of course, one thing about it, I am kind of a, a thief in a sense as an educator. I'll get something and I'll make it my own. So what I started doing, instead of just having them flip toward me, I would have them do that. Now I make like a sound. I go, ooh, whoop, and they all flip toward me, make it kind of a cool thing. So it really helps. And you get them to focus while you're, you know, instructing them on whatever you need to instruct them on. So, that, so yeah, that was the point where I kind of realized that this is how I want to teach it. Ever since then, that's how I've done it. That's so incredible. And I would also like to sort of unpack that idea of, yes, there is intuition, but there is also the um, depth of knowledge and planning mm -hmm. for those mm -hmm. sessions. And it comes, and does that actually, when, when say a teacher or the adult standing in front of the students, um, mm -hmm. that person has a depth of knowledge in what's to be taught, but it's planned well to a point that it's almost conversational and does, mm -hmm. that, does it manifest as intuition or is it actually intuition well i feel like it makes it easier if you do it I'm, I'm, i love lesson planning that's that's rare for most teachers but i love it um one of the things i like to do i plan my whole unit so um most teachers plan week by week i plan at least a whole nine weeks honestly i plan the whole year if i could and then i, I have something i call after planning so what i'll do I'll sit down and time out everything from throughout the week. So I'll go, um, but even with interventions, I'll go, this is gonna take this amount of time. And, and so it makes it easier. You realize what you need to cut out. You think about, well, it's the students in your room. Now, if you don't have a lot of behavior, it makes those things easier. Mm -hmm. So when it's time to adjust, it's easier to do it because you already know what you're gonna do the next day. You're already thinking of it in the back of your mind. So that's 
that's already turning. You begin with that end in mind. And you know what goal you want those kids to get to. And I know I just released a video from when I taught second grade and there was a student. Um, I took them through a lesson. I was teaching them theme and the student organically on his own. He said he made a theme to theme connections with the two passages that uh, he was reading. I was like, hmm, something tell me I should get this on video. Uh, so I was like, hey, can you say this when we're on video, when we're going over? And, you know, I did that. And I actually just, it was three or four years ago now, but I actually, you know, released that on social media. And um, it was pretty cool to see this kid was in second grade then. And he already was making theme to theme connections. And also a connection there, I guess we're bouncing around a little bit, like I said, conversational. This student at the time, um, he was getting tested. And a lot of people were trying to determine him to be um, dyslexic because his mom, she had a long, the family had a long history of it. And he did exhibit those signs. Um, but that also goes with, you know, don't get caught up on that reading level stuff because he was reading at a kindergarten reading level, but he's making things to the connection. So is he really a kindergarten reading level reader? Is it really, are you really going off of that? Because obviously he's not 100% that. Because if he can make, that's a pretty, they're fifth and sixth graders, they can't make theme to theme connections. Um, and for him to be able to do that in second grade, and I had a lot of awesome second graders that year. Um, but I know that kid, I told somebody, I think, I said, he's going to solve the reading one because um, he's a complex case. Um, he can memorize a word the first time. It was a lot of things that was just amazing about that student. I wrote an article about him in uh, Distinct Magazine. So um, it was pretty awesome. Um, and I, I'm still fam uh, friends with his family to today. So um, and it wasn't that long ago, but still. Um, so, yeah, my journey has been pretty cool when it comes to that and just learning about all those different components. That's incredible. Um, and I do apologize. I went off on a tangent, but I really did want to try to sort of unpack that concept of intuition versus mm. good planning and detail, mm. um, which then leads you to a point of knowing exactly where the need needs to be met. Mm -hmm. uh, or makes it yeah. easier. I see what you're saying. And some of it is just, I think a lot of, a lot of the things I was doing early in my career, it just felt right. Um, yeah. Some of it was something I was taught by my literacy coach and different people, but some of it was just based off of, Hey, this feels like the way I should be doing it. And um, I'm real big on Bloom's taxonomy. And I didn't realize my second year, I kind of was playing around with it. I just didn't realize it. I was like, Hey, you need to teach according to this flow or structure. And I was doing creating, letting kids do dramas, let them do certain things. I was already doing it. I just didn't realize that it just was coming natural to me and then i think the thing that helps me in the classroom and i'm saying natural it's a natural gift i'm good at interviewing so i know how my classrooms always have a lot of discussions my kids are great critical thinkers so that's one thing too that i think i've always naturally been pretty good at um because that's what i did before i became a teacher so i can create a lot of times i create my own questions for passages and things like that um it's not like something i find it from some book and just go off of that most of the time i just do it on my own so, Jeremiah, for listeners that may not be familiar with structured literacy, um, are mm. you able to explain what structured literacy is and then sort of reflect on your journey within structured okay. literacy before you actually realized it was? So sort of that hindsight question. It actually took a while Um, realize what it's called. But at the same, so yes, uh, I'm not one of the experts on it to that level, but structural literacy is more of a whole group model. So a lot of times with the teaching, um, the pre predominant model or the dominant model is balanced literacy, which is probably about to shift in the next year or so. But it's more of a small group structure. You do what they call a mini lesson, 10 to 15 minutes. I've heard people call it different terms, but normally it's the mini lesson or the I do. And then once you do that, you go into a small group, you put kids in stations or whatever you 
decide to do at that point, and then you pull a small, multiple small groups, and you teach kids through small groups, whether you guided reading, strided strategy groups, whatever method you choose to use. With structured literacy, it's more of a model where you use more whole group and it's more explicit instruction. So if you took through a whole instructional block, so I like to use words that you would explicitly teach them whatever skill or pattern you need to learn. Then, so if you go into reading, you might explicitly teach them plot or character traits, and then you re reinforce it through a gradual release model of I do, we do, you do, not I do, and then you know we get into small groups. You explicitly are teaching them this, and they're reinforcing it. Um, and it's not necessarily through a book. You're just teaching them the skill. And then, so say if you're writing, you're explicitly teaching them writing skills, not necessarily through a small group. Um, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with doing those things if it, at the right moment, but it's more of an explicit whole group model instead of getting into uh, small groups. And then a lot of it too, structural literacy is tied, of course, to evidence-based practices, being able to uh, um, embed fluency within your instruction. Of course, phonics, um, vocabulary instruction, um, background knowledge, which I know a lot of people say that sounds like a lot, but it's really not as hard as people make it out to be. It's not that hard. And it don't even take that much planning. It's just actually being intentional about it. Because once you start doing it, it's easy. So say, for example, I do a process called text analysis. Even in interventions, I do this. I rigor. Um, I build that background knowledge. So say, for example, I might have a story that has a, ro a red robin in it. Most kids don't know what a red robin is. So I show them a quick two, three minute video on what a red robin is. Or if we're doing a story on New York, I show them a video on what New York is. Um, I have kids that don't even know what Mississippi is, so I might need to let them know what that is. So that's just short two, three minutes. And then you build in phonics and all those things. I, I go over those things for four or five minutes and then we get into the passage. So you do that pre-teaching and then you can get into the teaching reading part and then you embed writing, all those good things. So I do all those things while I teach. Well, to kind of get around to the second part of the question, we said when I realized it probably wasn't to my fifth or sixth year when I realized what these things were. But I, if we want to talk about real human chapters, um, I see we got seven minutes on the first little part, so I probably can get through it in that time. Um, and I went to the school. I didn't realize, I didn't know what balance literacy was. I didn't know anything. We were bigger on test taking at my first school. So they were very upset that I didn't essentially use a balanced literacy model. At the time, all I knew was units of study. That's what they called it. I thought that, I thought that was what the name of it was or whatever system. But they wanted me to use do more groups. They didn't even care that my kids, 90% of them were passing. All of them could read. They love to read. They love school. All these great things. They were just like, hey, you need to do more groups. And I'm like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, I, I thought they were just crazy. Um, but I didn't realize that's kind of how I could be with uh, the balanced literacy. And of course, now structured literacy is coming in. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I didn't realize, even that year, I probably didn't realize what balanced literacy itself was. Um, but I started to learn a little bit over the next coming years. Um, and at the time, as I started looking at some of my practices at that time, I was like, you were a structured literacy teacher. You were a whole group. You, of course, you did small groups and RTI. Um, I, I was big on fluency. Um, I started doing word study my um, um, fourth year when I taught second grade. And that's really probably why I truly uh, started to learn about teaching reading and structured literacy and evidence-based practices, really through that student that I uh, talked about um, with some of his struggles. But second graders are all over the place. So you kind of got to do a lot of things. So I started doing a lot of stuff that was more structured literacy based, um, explicitly teaching comprehension. I always did that. Um, I may do phonics for small group instead of doing the guided reading piece. Some students might get guided reading. Some students got higher order stuff, more strategy groups. So I started doing a lot of things um, in that regard. Um, and then I started, of course, embedding right. Even though second grade is kind of hard to do that. I did a lot of discussion. Um, we did social studies, science. Of course, I was self-contained. 
Um, but really, uh, up until the point I became an interventionist, um, so essentially I came up with a structured literacy intervention um, structure, and that's kind of why I realized, okay, this is what you are. I probably didn't realize the first couple of truly what I am, but now I, I understand I'm more structured literacy, although I, some balanced literacy components are okay, but coming toward that structured literacy journey and realizing that you have to use evidence-based practices, there's a lot of things people do like, oh, you're doing word families when you should be teaching kids to sound out words. And it's interesting, you're a speech pathologist. I have a student right now, I'm working with the interventions. Um, in some ways I got inside in, in some ways it's still tough. I'm gonna have to really get aggressive, but this student showing that you gotta look at everything. She gets short, short vowels, but she has a speech issue. So she has show blends and um, R's are a little bit of a challenge as well, which I guess all those kind of go together. Um, but blends are a no-go for. So essentially reading level-wise, she cannot advance past B, C, D, she can't advance past the lower level because that's all those is, is blends. So she, but as I was working with her yesterday, we're going through a word like made, which doesn't have blends, but most kids don't get CBC. She does. She gets long vowels and knows even on unfamiliar words to make it long and those different type of things. So a student that normally gets those, they're normally reading somewhere JK, something like that, but she doesn't get blends. So I was like, okay, we're going to have to get really aggressive with blends, even though she has a speech issue. I mean, that's fine, but we got to work past it. Um, and she's getting better with control R. So I was like, and then I recommended her for GT as well. But it's a student that, according to our reading level, she's a kid they might try to put into some other little program or something like that. But if you really are looking at evidence-based and you're screening the student, you would know what that gap is and you wouldn't even worry about that other stuff. You would just, hey, we're going to address this issue. If we correct this issue, that child will be fine. But I think a lot of times with balanced literacy philosophy, which is more what I have an issue with, they focus more on the reading level and not the whole student. They're not saying they're bad people, but I think they don't look at the whole picture. Honestly, I deal with it even in the district I work in. A lot of people, even though it's shifting, they deal a lot with the reading level, not with the whole battery of everything. It, it throws off a lot of the teachers that I want to screen for everything. I want to do phonics. I want to do spelling. I want to do fluency. I do everything. I look at all data, even... Um, some of the other metrics that other people don't even look at. I look at birth dates. So it's every little thing matters. So I think that's where that evidence-based practice comes into play because a lot of people, they don't look at everything. They just look at a piece of it. And you have to look at the whole student. And the, the main reason I think with a lot of people, it takes work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like It's easy to look at a reading level and just go. I'm like, what does that tell you? And the sobering fact to that, sometimes teachers lie. Um, so it's... It's just telling the truth. So it's kind of like, I mean, people probably don't want to hear that, but teacher might say a kid's a J and they might really be a, a D. So, and then you're going off of that and that kid got gaps all over the place and they're saying that this is their reading level, but they got all these gaps and you're wondering why the child not moving because they're not at the reading level that they're supposed to be at. So I think that's my only problem. It's okay with reading level, but at least be authentic with it. Because when it's not authentic, you're going to have if you're going off of they're supposed to be an AL or whatever reading level, but they're really way lower, you're hurting the student because you're not filling the gap that you need to be filling. Yeah. That is, so. You've brought up so many interesting points, Jeremiah. We might have to um, go into the next <laughs> link, but just one of the things um, that I'd love you to talk about is, you know how you've talked about connecting your word word um, level reading to your spelling, mm -hmm. to your writing, to that. Then if we're thinking about the Scarborough's reading rope, the language mm -hmm. comprehension, like connecting, mm -hmm. um, I would love you to talk us through your process as a teacher. Okay. 
of how you connect different elements to sort okay. of align with your teaching. Okay, yeah, I definitely can do that as far as well, we got a minute and 20. Um, but I quickly can talk about even on um, my word power routine. Essentially, it embeds all of that. So say, for the, for example, the first day I do, um, I introduce, so I embed all those together. So say I might um, introduce the sound, phonemic awareness. So we're doing long A. Um, the letter A makes the A sound, or I might go AI makes the A sound. And the kids will repeat that part. And I'm like, what sound does it make? And then the kids will go A. Of course, that's the motivation they laugh because it's a funny voice. And then I go into, um, I stand on a table and then I'll, even the interventions, I have like one kid in there, I stand on the table and I'll go, the word is rain. What's the word? And then they'll go rain. So that's that phonological awareness piece. And then we get into phonics, they're underlying the pattern in those words. And then I get into a, a routine. I actually interviewed this lady uh, this this week, finally was able to get her for an interview, um, vocabulary trailers, um, which is their opportunity to, so say like they'll have the word and they'd be like in this picture, that particular word, using that word in a sentence. Um, and they actually can write it as well too. Um, sometimes I do that in interventions, but most of the time they talk it out. So that's that oracy piece. Amazing. All right, let's get into the second link and I'll ask you. All right. Let me see if I go to. So, Jeremiah, we um, sort of ended with how you connected the phonemic awareness to um, your phonological awareness to phonics, to vocabulary within that sort of word level. Um, mm -hmm. I'll take a bit of a tangent. And one of the things I'd love to ask you is you knowing what you're doing for your students at school, mm -hmm. what was, and you said that early on that your family had lots of educators. What mm -hmm. was that education importance and peace like within your own childhood? Well, as a kid, the crazy part, I was the smart kid, but I probably didn't realize like how impactful it was. Like I think I mentioned off air with my family, it was, it was a bunch of single mothers, um, honestly, but they all were really good students. So in a sense, they were like rock star students. Um, the district that I initially was in um, before we moved, um, their legacies, like all of them were straight A students. Um, my mom was a teacher's assistant. And I think I didn't realize the superintendent of the district was like a relative or something like that. And I had other relatives who worked within the school district. Uh, my mom, my, my sister is a, a teacher. She's a ELA teacher. Um, most of her career, she does something else now which is kind of something that grinds my gears a little bit. But um, my, one of my aunts is a Spanish teacher. Um, her daughter teaches English to foreigners. Um, my other aunt was a teacher. So it's kind of, I didn't know if my brother was over a military school when he was in the military. So it's kind of it's kind of what we do. Um, um, if we're not leaders, we're teaching something or uh, somewhere around those realms. So um, I think as a youngster, I probably didn't take education as seriously as I should have, um, but that kind of informs my teaching because I don't look at it as just, hey, being a smart kid, you got to you know build those other skills because mm -hmm. um, literacy, that literacy piece always came easy to me. Um, the crazy part, I didn't see myself as a writer as a young kid, but I look back at all my old writings. I was like, man, I was a really good writer. I didn't realize that uh, I enough in the fifth grade. I won a contest for something that I wrote because um, I've looked at some of my writing. My style is still the same. So I had the guilt that just nobody told me like, hey, you should become a writer. The guilt was always there. Um, but also... Uh, and I talk more about my mom's side of family, but I, I wrote a reflection recently talking about that gift of storytelling. I know like you were talking about not everybody's a storyteller, but I get that gift from my grandmother. 
um, she can hold court. She'll talk about stories for days. Um, I even told her I was going to do a story on, on both sides of my family, which I wrote a pretty big reflection on once uh, about five or six years ago. And she's like, you won't even have any room for anybody else because she can tell stories for that. I would just sit and listen to her all the time when I was a kid. So I could tell stories like people will say you'll say the most boring stuff. I say the most boring stuff, but I always make it entertaining. Like it's always interesting. So um, because I got that gift from my grandma. So that that oral language, um, she wasn't formally educated. So I kind of combined both pieces. Uh, uh, I'm the type of person you're around me. I'm very much like both sides of my family. I'm very serious, like my mom's side. So I understand the educational piece and the words. But I have like that that piece from my grandma where I'm kind of can tell stories and I know how to engage people without being all serious about it. So it's kind of a combination of both. And it's tied into now as a teacher, um, I take it very seriously and I want to make sure all kids can read, um, but I also want to equip them with the tools to be successful. Absolutely. And which will go, it's a nice segue to my next question, Jeremiah, is education. You've said in your family, it's, you called it a pedigree. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> um, and you talked about so when you said it's a combination of both the storytelling plus that actual literacy piece. To me, the Scarborough's reading rope immediately mm -hmm. into my mental schema. Going, mm -hmm. yeah, it makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Why is education so important within your family? I don't know. I think it's um one of the things, like I said, I think it did start with my mom and her sisters on, on my mom, my mom's side. My grandma, she didn't inform me. I didn't here's I didn't realize my grandma like in her time. Um, I didn't find out until she passed away that she actually was quite brilliant. As I mean, I knew she was smart, but I didn't realize she when she worked, she was always like one of the better people. Um, she was good at selling things. She was always she she was a brilliant person. I just didn't realize it. So it's just but she was always big on education, apparently. So my mom and her sisters, they all were really good students. Um, straight A students, um, even though some of them apparently were talkers in school, they still were great students. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's kind of was that piece that always stayed within us, even though we didn't have me and say some of my cousins, my siblings, we didn't have traditional upbringings as far as having everything. But uh, education was always important. And we knew to go to school, we knew to go to college, we knew to do those things. Um, so I think that's kind of where it started. And it kind of brings me to now with a lot of those kids, I want to give a lot of the kids I work with that opportunity to advance. Um, uh, a lot of the kids I've worked with, so probably the best example is one of my students. She she wrote a book. When I first got this student, she was they were kind of pushing her toward RTI. They were saying she wrote stuff a little backwards, so possibly dyslexic or something like that. And it seemed like it was some history with her other siblings are having the same issue. And that student I worked with, her. I told her mom let me work with her. So I worked with her. Um, she became a pretty solid reader, good reader, and she got to where she was passing tests left and right. And in middle school, they put her in advanced placement courses. And then, of course, she wrote a book. So it's kind of you giving those kids that gateway to be successful themselves. Um, being strong readers is the, the start of that. Because once they're able to read, like that student, the other student I told you about that was um, dyslexic, he had that history in his family. His mom had to go to a specialized school and had to deal with, like a teacher got fired because she was treating her so poorly. But I was able to catch him early, which they say research-wise is the best time to catch those kids is when it's early. That student was in second grade. So he's fine now. Because um, all you have to do is get them to an M at that time or get them to a certain place. Um, obviously, I already had the comprehension. So now that student is mastering assessments now. So, so he never had to go into dyslexia. He never had to deal with that for, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade or anything like that. He uh, He's already done with all that. Absolutely. And I suppose an extension to my question now. So the importance of education and 
we have heard of the concept called um, school to prison pipeline. Um, and mm-hmm. that prison is uh, physical, so your literal meaning of prison or your metaphorical meaning, the prison of your mind, which um, was it was Pamela Snow, one of the leading um, educators, speech pathologists, psychologists mm-hmm. in Australia. She put it so nicely is that, sure, it might not be a physical prison, but if you have so many difficulties then it's impacting your thinking. It's impacting your mm. ability to understand the world around you. The word, right? You, right? So, so that becomes almost your metaphorical. So you're still trapped in some form. It's just... Then- I, I think reading gives you that ability to assess situations. Um, math, writing, all that stuff is great, but you have spell check, you have calculators. But with reading, that's just reasoning. Um, I, I, I told this story at a staff meeting a couple weeks ago, or maybe a month or so ago. Um, when I taught second grade, my students were walking outside and they noticed that half the back bike rack was gone. And which normally it doesn't mean that big a deal. My students were like, oh, I think the reason they moved because they needed the space and we weren't really using it. Like, what? That's that natural thing where you're thinking about your environment because they ain't got nothing to do with uh, actual reading in the sense of reading some story and passing a test. But those those natural reasoning skills that come through reading and you start inferring, you start doing those things. Um, so those are the things I think that come along with reading. So you naturally can assess situations and your processing speed of being able to sense things and being able to notice. It's probably not the best story. Another story with this. So say another one of my younger cousins, he's five or six, but he stays with one of my aunts. And um, she's literally the most brilliant person in my family. Um, but he noticed a person... Um, had they noticed a person that had vitiligo, which is not funny at all. But at the same time, he's five or six, and he's wondering what's up with that. He's already asking questions like that's different. You know, what why is that person, you know, um, so it might seem simple, but a five or six year old already noticing that something's wrong and thinking to ask the question, thinking to start doing that. Um, and even a student of mine, uh intervention student, he was saying that his I think I did a video aloud with a donkey from a scene from on Shrek. And I like, do you know anybody like Donkey? He was like, yeah, my mom, she asks a lot of questions. <laughs> and so, but this kid has really good yeah. um, inferencing skills and things like that because his mom is always asking questions. So it's natural that he would probably get a little better at that. Um, so it, it's kind of like things like that. Everything plays a part into it. And like I said, I mentioned about my family, but I noticed with a lot of students. Um, so say, for example, that uh, that student I tell you about just a lot just with him um, that has informed my practice, but his, I mean, his dad a pretty good friend. His dad is brilliant. So his dad's always using big words, watching all these programs of this high-level stuff. So it's natural for him to absorb that stuff. Even though he was dyslexic, he was he was very brilliant. He can make those connections because that's all he listens to at home, you know, those those conversations. So it makes a really, really big difference. And um, because I've had students, I know one parent that told me that she didn't she never used baby talk with her daughter. Our daughter was brilliant. I still remember the, I want to say the second day of class. I uh, read a story from uh, a poem from Mother to Son, which is very high level. And the student was like, she was like, oh, it sounds like uh, his had, mom had a very rough life. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I might like, got some here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have so many students from that classroom that said so many cool things. I mean, I can't even pick one. It's like all of them had their little moments where you're like, okay. And these were kids that supposedly weren't even on level, but they would say, cool things. I was like, wow, but that kid on the second day of school, she's already can analyze a, a poem that complex. I was like, okay, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think this is going to be a good year. 
That's that's incredible, Jeremiah. And I'd actually like to unpack that um, thinking piece a little bit more. So you mm-hmm. talked about being a natural interviewer um, with mm-hmm. your students. And if we are thinking about the language comprehension strands of Scarborough's Reading Rope, the first three are background knowledge, vocabulary, and language mm-hmm. structures, right? So vocabulary and language structures in relation to a text, you can actually see it written in written form, right? Mm -hmm. But the background knowledge piece, which is somewhat abstract, how do Mm -hmm. you, when you are unpacking a text or when you're unpacking piece of information, it could be anything, a YouTube clip or whatever the stimulus is, what's your processing around what's important within that background knowledge piece? A lot of times I just see what the text is about first. Um, so, say, so say, for example, I was in interventions uh, last year. And one of the things, these student moved to New York. A lot of mm-hmm. kids might not know much about New York as far as like, oh, it's a big area, it's the city, all those things. Mm-hmm. So I saw the video on what this stuff was. And I still remember uh, after we were going through the passage, um, I think I asked, asked the inferencing question. And the student was like, oh, they're probably doing that because they want to stay there because it's such a big area. She would have known that before I showed that. So a lot of times something simple is showing a video or as they say, activate their prior knowledge. You see where they're at. Um, maybe it's about something that they, hey, have you ever had to make up your room or, you know, clean up your house or something like that? That's just activating. That's something they maybe should know about. Yeah. But um, I thought about, um, um, I was working with one of my students doing tutoring and I think I had, the story was on camping. I thought about, I didn't go camping myself until I was an adult. So yeah. It's like things like that. You don't think about like kids won't know this stuff because they've never done that. Or um, last year, I actually was teaching third grade and I was working with a student in a small group. She actually was pretty solid, but the story was on soccer. The student didn't know anything about soccer. <laughs> so obviously she couldn't get most of the questions or the questions I was asking right because she didn't know that scoring a goal is a big deal. So it's like those type of things. You almost had to think about that beforehand. You have to know your population as well. Um, so the school I work at now is mostly Hispanic. They're not going to get figurative language as well um because they're still learning language so figurative language is like a whole nother thing and you have to understand they may not come with that natural background knowledge of all these sports um because even um when i uh, i did a mission trip in mexico and one of the coaches there we were working with like a football team that they had there and the coach was saying that it's hard for them to it takes them two or three years just to get the guys on to actually be able to play because they didn't grow up with football football american football you know so they don't have that natural aggression like even if, uh, so say like myself and some of my friends, we might not have played Pop Warner or played seventh, eighth grade, but if we played ninth, tenth grade, we probably been playing out in the yard or with our friends for years. We actually know the sport. We see it on TV. So it's some things we just naturally know. So they didn't because they don't have that natural background knowledge. So you kind of could just tie that into teaching. A lot of times kids just don't know things. And that's where you have to understand your, your student population is things they may not know. Um, maybe if they're a middle, upper class group, they might know some things. But if you're talking about kids from lower socioeconomic status, or they might not know certain information, so you have to give it to them. Yeah, um, which that's so interesting. So my next question is your instruction taking into account equity, knowing mm-hmm. your population, knowing mm-hmm. knowing the disadvantage points. And mm-hmm. as an adult, this might be a difficult question, so feel free to decline it. Knowing our own biases, how how do you work through that to make sure your instruction is equitable, to make sure um, 
yeah, there is that underlying equity in background knowledge, in getting the students to perform all of well, that. I mean, that's why I feel like I've been so thankful that I've worked in probably three different student populations. My first school I worked at was predominantly African-American, or I guess you say urban. I still think a lot of the kids still kind of lived in the, it was a neighborhood school. So I guess America, we say neighborhood school, meaning most of the kids live in the neighborhood. They don't come from like apartments or anything like that. Um, my second population was more middle class, um, mostly white students, some Hispanic and then African-American students in the population I work in now is mostly uh, Hispanic students. And a lot of them are first generation, maybe second. Um, you don't have a lot of third generation students. So you come with that in mind that, hey, their parents, so the school I work at now, you might know a lot of the kids, their parents don't speak um, English at home. So you know they're dealing with that. So they need to learn words. Um, mm -hmm. Um, they may not have someone that can work with them at home, so you might have to just work around that. Um, you can't send them as the thing that I thought was odd when I came to the, uh, the school I met. Like, I was so used to parents doing work at home with the kids. Like, you give them something, you send them something through email or something like that, they would do it. But a lot of those parents, the parents I have at the school I met now, they don't, may not understand it and they may not know how to implement it. And that's where you just got to understand you have to learn to work around it, whether you have them come in the morning for tutoring or you just got to front load a lot more things or create space throughout the day for them to work on some of those extra little things to fill gaps. You can't rely on the parents to help you um, in that regard. So you have to kind of almost think about that. So I, I would say it's in a way it's a difficult question, but in a way it's not. I feel like you, if you go in with the mindset that all kids can be successful, I know it sounds like a corny thing to say, but I've been successful in every environment I've been in and I've taught in three different environments mm -hmm. and all those students have been just as successful. But if you're going to, the kids know, um, the best statement I've heard throughout my career, probably when it came to student and, um, expectations, um, a new parent came into my classroom. We were having a Christmas party. And I was like, well, if, you know, they get 100 percent on the STARS test, which is our state assessment in Texas, if they get 100 um, percent. Then we're going to have a, a party and all this good stuff. And then one of my students is not if, but when. Mm. I was like, my student said that she corrected me. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, I never did probably think of the power in that, that a student really, they really believed it. So, and I think that's the most important thing. If you get all students to believe they can be successful, they will be. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Jeremiah. Um, what my Something I was thinking about is that you mentioned a lot of the children have informed your practice, have informed your um, understanding about certain evidence-based practices. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that and unpack that part of it? What, do you, what is the student doing and how are you learning from that student? A lot of times it's like a lot of stuff I do. So say, for example, when I taught second grade, kids are all over the place. And it might be something as simple as like that one student. I created that word power routine to help that one student. My sister, the educator, I tell him like, hey, I don't know what to do with him. He can't decode one word. He can't spell one word. I have never seen this before. Um, maybe if I worked low grade, I would have seen something like that. And she was like, he needs to see the words. So I had to brainstorm to create a system that would work for him. And then it worked for all the students. Um, but when I taught that second grade classroom, it was, um, so say I created an intervention system um, where it was a five part intervention system where it built in home, guided reading, RTI, morning work, all that, all those were part of the system. And I'm probably giving away too much of my system now, but it, anyway, it'll be out there soon. But um, I realized, I was like, okay, my kids know the daily number. And what I was thinking, I was like, man, maybe I could do something else that's more impactful, mm -hmm. um, make it where it's more geared toward what those students need. So I looked at um, 
looked at all the data and I was like, okay, this is what this student needs to do in the morning. This student needs to do handwriting. This student needs to do reader's response. This student needs to do spelling. This student needs to do this. And all students have their own, like I even got a cool little video of it. I probably need to release that. Um, they got video of it. I really think about it. I think I do need to, but that's probably what I need to do next week. But so video of them, um, like actually doing all the different activities in the morning. We call it tie time, um, target, intervene, develop, uh, enhance. And through that, you can kind of see that all those different components and you hit on everything in those gaps that those students have instead of just following a rudimentary, um, like, I guess, structure or whatever, you know, people do. But everything's about problem solving of what, you know, my students need. And most of the time, that's all it's being of being very structured in what you do um, based off what those students need. And a lot of times I create structures based off of that. And that's mostly what I've done. Some of it's just me being creative, but a lot of it has been based off of uh, issues the kids might have. So say, for example, this year, I had a student, she had trouble retelling a story and um, understanding the problem solution. So I created an anchor chart um, and I talked to an old friend, an old educator of mine, a friend of mine who I worked with. I was like, hey, this student's struggling with this. She's like, it sounds like she needs some money. And so I kind of just brainstormed. I was like, hey, I don't know what to do. And then I thought about, oh, I went to this training about power pigs that is using like the sun and different things. So I was like, uh, I came up with the five parts of a story. So I was like, the sun is shining on the setting. Um, my eyes are on the problem. Um, I tried and found the events. My, this is squarely the solution. Now I have my five fingers on the parts of a story. And that student started to be able to get it. She was getting character change. So she was being able to put those pieces together. Um, and this is a student, um, when I was talking to the speech pathologist, ironically enough, she works with her. She was saying that um, she had really had some struggles with that. Like, and I even noticed, I was like, most kids I've even seen never sped. They could like, I show them a video and they could kind of recount it or tell me things. She couldn't even do that. I was like, wow, this is a little different. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to really try to figure this out um, to grow that student. She went from like a G to like a K. So she grew a lot just in a like an eight week time span um, using methods like that. Um, so, you know, I created an anchor chart for it and things like that. So um, that's why I say it's just come through problem solving. A lot of times that's where a lot of my routines come from is to benefit students, you know, and, and what they need. And isn't that so interesting, Jeremiah, is that you are always collecting that data, whether it's standardized mm -hmm. or not. And even in that moment to go, um, what what is the skill or what was the task the student was supposed to do? What did they do instead? And I think that is so important to go is what was the error? Because that informs so many, mm. it gives you such a rich story as to what's happening in there. But if you say, oh, the students just um, done this or not done it correctly, but not actually gone into what did they do instead, right? Mm. Missing a chunk of that story. Well, I think the thing is, when they talk about evidence-based practice, uh, like one of the things, um, like I said, with my intervention structure, one of the things you identify those gaps, you might think like a kid's a certain reading level or something like that. And you think, oh, um, they're just reading level because they don't have comprehension. We need to do more guided reading. But a lot of times the kid might just have one little gap. Like I have a student in interventions, uh, I had her intervention. She was an I at the beginning of the year in third grade, which is about four levels behind. But when I went through all the battery of whatever, I saw that. One, she missed a little school because of uh, COVID or she was virtual, which means she wasn't in school. And then, so I knew she was possibly behind because of that. Um, but she was foundationally pretty solid. But the one weakness she had was fluency. Or she wasn't very fluent. So I put it, 
I've always put a focus on that intervention. So this student went from 49 words per minute to 115 words per minute. Her vocabulary actually was pretty good. Um, and her accuracy was pretty good. So really, she just was just fluent. So this child went from an I to an O. And this was in a, a span of like 12 to 14 weeks. So that's six levels in six, seven weeks. Um, and it was another student in that same group. They All the rest of them grew the same way because they all had kind of similar certain gaps. And you just fill those gaps. Um, so I think that's where it comes down to. Like sometimes people want to focus on a level or like some, oh, that's they just need this. And really, if you just focus on that one area, the, the kid will accelerate. I had another student. She was the same way with fluency. Uh, I want to say she only read 50 words, maybe about the same 43 words per minute. She went up to 126 words per minute. So she went from an O to a T in 11 weeks just through boosting the fluency. And, and one of the things um, that you haven't stated it uh, bluntly, but you know these components, you know these um, micro elements that are required for a student to be proficient. Where, where do you learn all of this from? That, that SOR, and um, one of the things I did this year with my intervention students, um, going through those reading profiles and things like that, like, I think people make it like it's, it seems so difficult, but it's really not. Like, after you really, because once you put things, um, you put that all the data there, you really can see the gap. Most mm -hmm. times you almost can kind of, I have a template that I use. You can see the gap. And then you're like, okay, this is what that student needs. Um, and I think, again, most people look at their reading level and they just go because it's a subjective measure. It's so many, sometimes kids just don't even do well on them. I had one kid even tell me, he don't be understanding the questions when the teacher asks them. Because if you look at his, his other metrics, he actually is on level, but if he does the reading level test. He's a, a bilingual student. So a lot of times he even told me he don't be understanding what the teacher be saying. So it's something as simple as that. And that's where I feel like looking at that data. Because I think reading, we try to make it all idealistic and, oh, it's reading the heart of a student. No, if you look at the data, it'll pretty much tell you what's wrong. Yeah. And I think sometimes people want to, it's really, I, I just call it, but I think a lot of times teachers are just lazy. They don't want to put in the work to extra screen, but it really don't even take that long. Um, a lot of times when I, I screen for fluency, um, vocabulary, phonics, all that stuff, it takes like 30, 35 minutes because while you're doing fluency, they could be doing a vocabulary screener. While you're testing certain kids, I pretty much can get a whole classroom in one day. You can get them on the second day of school. You can get all that data. You have all the information that you need. You have previous test data sometimes or stuff in the previous year. Sometimes you have all the information you need. You just got to use it and know what you're looking at. And I think that's the main thing. I think that's our, our people trying to get people to understand, know what you're looking at. And then once you know what you're looking at, attack it. And you'd be amazed how fast those kids can grow. Um, but I think a lot of times people take the slow approach and look at reading levels and they just do guided reading and it's not doing the trick. And these kids have gaps and they don't think to fill them. And like I had a student this year in interventions. Um, she was supposedly a D at the end of the year. And then the teacher said she was a B and then I tested her. She didn't even know her letter sounds. And I'm like, how? Like, how is she these reading levels and that child a, a D and she don't even know her letter sounds? I'm like, oh, so it's kind of like you see a lot of things like that sometimes when people go off to that. So and they give a kid a reading level that don't make any sense. It's not logical. Mm. Um, and Jeremiah, before we do wrap up, has there been anything that I haven't asked you about your journey, something that you've wanted to mention? Um. I mean, of course, I had like that raw passion as far as to make kids um, um, great readers and just great students in a general sense. Um, but it's always, for one, I mean, whether you become a researcher, I've been able to do podcasts and do presentations, but at the same time, you have to keep the heart of that 
kids are going to be your primary focus no matter what you do. I think that's the thing. Um, of course, one of my hearts now is for them to be great readers now that I've come really into this literacy thing. Because mm-hmm. uh, when I started off, I was all about test taking and motivating and doing things like that. And then I really became a sponge for all this SOR, learning about everything that comes along with teacher reading. Because I still read balanced literacy stuff. It's not like I'm like, oh, forget that. Um, and that's one thing I probably will say. And I, I um, did a, I guess I call it a talking Tuesday. I talked about let's not get so caught up on the labels. We need to just go in there and teach them reading because there are some balanced literacy components that are okay. And we need to just focus on teaching the kids what we need to teach them instead of getting so caught up on being in certain camps. But I do feel like the structured literacy model is the best way to go about it if you have to choose one. Um, and, and really just being evidence-based as far as like thinking about what those actual gaps are and and going about it that way. Um, so that's probably the main thing, but don't get so caught up on the label part. I think that's the most dangerous part, but that's really that I love teaching and love literacy. I mean, I'm actually planning on going back to the classroom myself next year. So that's kind of my goal for next year to go back to the classroom. I feel like at the end of the day, we need teachers. Like being an intervention is great, but being a teacher and being able to mold 20 to 40 students is still very critical and it's, it's needed. Um, it's kind of the good to great thing. The best way to lead is to be great at what you're doing. Absolutely. And um, thank you so much for all of this incredible information about your chapter, Jeremiah. Where do people find you? Um, you can find me first right now on my TikTok, uh, The Phenomenal Teacher. Um, on Facebook, The Phenomenal Student. On Twitter, it's Mr. 100 Teacher. That's because I couldn't use The Phenomenal Teacher. <laughs> um, so most of you look up The Phenomenal Student, pretty much you'll find me. Um, a lot of, uh, like I have my my actual website, thephenomenalstudent.com. So it's going to be on, on all those platforms. And then I should be, I'm going to be, I'm formerly a national presenter now. I've had a chance to present nationally. And then I'll be doing my first uh, consultation uh, presentation in two months. So I'm excited for that. So, and it's oddly enough to present structural literacy, my structural literacy intervention. So I'm excited for the opportunity really to get out there and really, um, really impact kids' lives. Um, I came, I'm only seven years in, but to be able to, impact kids to this level this early in my career is um, pretty amazing so and thank you for interviewing me not a problem at all thank you so much and for everyone that will be listening um, to this interview thank you all so much I'll upload it on Human Chapters YouTube Human Chapters podcast and Human Chapters Facebook Um, please share it it's a fantastic (laughs) conversation and yeah get in touch with Jeremiah through any of these platforms. All right, thank you.